With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. If you enjoy We've Never Been Clicked, or if you feel bad for us, we'd appreciate your five-star review and subscription on iTunes. Also, check us out on SoundCloud. WNBC. 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 Hello and welcome to episode 10 of We've Never Been Clicked. This is Cuppy Cup, and today I'm flying solo other than my wonderful guest. I'm very happy to welcome Ben Baby, college beat writer for the Dallas Morning News. He was previously on the high school beat for the San Antonio Express News. How are you doing, Ben? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I want to start this off on, on kind of a light note. Once I started following you, I see you popping up in my feed all the time. And every time I see that, alliterative awesomeness of your name, Ben Baby, it makes me wonder if you feel as cool as your name sounds. No, it's a lot to live up, a lot of hype to live up to, if I'm being quite honest. So, uh, you know, it is a burden that I carry on a, uh, on a daily basis, but, you know, it is what it is at this point. So <laughs> I think the best I can do is try to try to come close to the bar that my, uh, my name was, uh, or the bar of my name, <laughs> and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So. That's fantastic. And I think that it's undisputed that you have the, the best name of any writer on the Aggie beat. Everyone uh, out there listening, you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben, B-E-N underscore baby, B-A-B-Y. And how has Aggie Twitter been treating you so far, Ben? Uh, not too bad. It's been, it's been fairly tame, uh, which is nice. Um, I expect that to change uh, as the season gets going. Uh, I've uh, I've fully prepared for my Twitter mentions to be a complete dumpster fire <laughs> for fans of all across college football whenever the season gets going. So I am now becoming immune to uh, nasty mentions and things of that nature. But Aggie faithful have not been bad uh, so far. So it's been it's been quite. They've they've welcomed me to the beat and it's been nice. Well, as long as you don't say anything marginally negative about any college football team, you'll be fine. There you go. I think uh, I think that's a good way to approach things. <laughs> Now, some Aggies think that Dallas Morning News has a pervasive Longhorn bias. Uh, They probably have some nickname for it, like Dallas Horning News. What are you seeing so far from the inside? I'm sure it's rolling around somewhere. There's a there's a colloquial name for our our newspaper. (laughs) Um, I don't think we get paid enough to have a bias one way or the other, to be quite honest. Um, So as I tell coaches, um, especially when I do the high school stuff, I said, Y'all can go 16 and 0, which is a perfect season, or 0 and 10, and I get paid the same amount of That's money. That's right. <laughs> so, so the win totals, their win total is not really do much for me. So I don't, I really don't have a, a dog in the fight. So. Right. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I'm hoping, you know, my, my, my job at the end of the end of the day is to give the best coverage I can to the readers. And in this case, my readers will be A&M fans. So I hope to, uh, to give them everything, you know, I, I give them my best day in, day out. And we'll go from there. Hopefully that's a, Hopefully that's what they're looking for. And then if uh, Chuck Carlton starts writing about Texas too much, <laughs> I'll go over there and take his kneecaps out or something. Just let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I need to do. And I always imagine that it's more fun to cover a team that's doing well. I don't really buy into the perspective that there are Aggie beat writers trying to, to bring down the program. 
No, I think every beat writer wants to cover a team that's like good. That's more enjoyable than covering a team that's bad. Yeah. My, uh, my buddy, uh, Brett Vito, and I started at the Denver Record Chronicle and I went to North Texas. Um, and, and Brett's covered North Texas for well over a decade now. And he's had to cover some just awful teams. And it's a, and it is a beating. So when a team's go, I mean, things just go smoother when you're winning, but you know, of course, you know, you can't control any of that. We just have to write, we just have to write the news and we'll go from there. So. And are you covering other teams or are you focused exclusively on Texas A&M this season? The way we describe it is I'm a college's writer with an A&M emphasis. Okay. So I, I saw so A&M is my primary beat. I'll, I'll be going to all the A&M games at road, home and road. Uh, but, you know, I'll still be doing a little TCU stuff, a little Baylor stuff. So there's plenty of things to uh, keep us occupied oh, sure. uh, here in the offseason. And then, yeah, it's been it's been crazy. What is it like to cover the Aggie beat? I guess you haven't really gotten into the thick of things yet because fall camp's on the horizon. But but what do you expect a, a typical day to be like of fall camp? Do you have to to drive into campus every day from Dallas or, or how does that work? God, I, I hope not. That's a lot of driving. <laughs> I'm actually on highway. I'm actually on Highway Six for the first time right now, so I'm uh, I'm looking forward to uh, getting into town and, and scoping things out. Um, but yeah, we'll go down. You know, like Tuesday's the only media media availability, um, so we'll come down on. So I'll come down on Tuesday for that, and then head back to Dallas. And then if there's a home game, uh, I'll come down for that, and then head back when that's over. So um, that's kind of the way we approach it. If A and M had more availability. Uh, throughout the week, I think there's a better chance that I would be, you know, stationed in College Station. Right. Uh, but since as much as since they they don't, and there's you know other things we have to deal with as well, uh, closer to closer to Dallas, and it, it makes more sense to be stationed in Dallas and then just go down as needed. Sure thing. Is Highway Six running both ways for you? That is this is correct. This is, what I've been told is Highway Six runs both ways. So <laughs> I I see cars going uh, opposite the direction of mine. So. I believe that that idiom is correct. All right, it's a Snopes confirmation here, uh, live on. We've never been clicked. So let's uh, let's jump in go. a little bit to uh, what we expect to see in fall camp. So obviously, one of the major uh, storylines everyone's following is Trevor Knight as QB one. Do you expect this to just be kind of an uncontested thing throughout fall camp since he was named the starter in the spring, or do you think Jake Kubinak has any chance to make a push? I think bringing Trevor Knight in was a clear indicator that, you know, Kubinak was the the guy to get it done. So if you have a guy that even is marginally better than Kubinak, you know, I think that's going to be the, that's going to be the guy you go with. And Trevor has a good background, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting. And I, I noted this in our SEC media day story about Trevor Knight, that him and someone have one very big thing in common is that a win over Alabama has essentially made their careers over the last few years. Sure. Uh, in the Sugar Bowl, I believe, a couple of years ago. I mean, that's what, you know, catapulted him to big heights. And, you know, that gave Oklahoma a lot of hype heading to heading into that year. And I believe that would have been his 2014 year. Um, but, you know, it just didn't work out. Trevor threw too many interceptions. Um, you know, uh, Coach Someone talked about his gunslinger attitude probably getting him into trouble. So that's something he's going to have to work on. Uh, but Hubenak is, I've always liked Jake Hubenak. I remember when I worked in Denton, uh, Hubenak was at Georgetown, and they played uh, Denton Geyer, who had Gerard Hurd, who's now at Texas, mm-hmm. at quarterback. And so it was Hubenak uh, versus Hurd, which is the closest we're going to get to A&M versus Texas <laughs> uh, anytime soon. But I remember watching Hubenak, and I, and I was like, this kid can, can play a little bit. He had the size. Looked like he had, you know, a decent arm strength. 
And so it was kind of shocking that, you know, he was going to be a preferred walk-on, I guess, at Oklahoma State, or I don't even know who was a preferred walk-on. I just know he was a walk-on at Oklahoma State. Then he went to Blinn, I believe, and then uh, went over to A&M. So it actually has been really amazing to see what Hubenet's mm-hmm. done. Um, you know, a guy that a guy that was really unheralded coming out of high school, and for him to go out and start games for an SEC team is remarkable. So I think Jake Hubenak doesn't get enough credit for what he's been able to do. And then, you know, having to be the guy to deal with the, the mess at A&M last right. year, you know, I think, you know, so if things go south with Trevor Knight, at least they have a, a quality backup at Hubenak. Hubenak will, you know, I think, I think the biggest deal for either of these quarterbacks is to just not make bad decisions. Um, because you have a, you have great receivers all over the field, right. so it's just a matter of finding the open one. It's not like you only have one guy or two guys that you can trust. I mean, you've got you know, if Speedy Noyle becomes a dependable number four. That you've got four quality receivers, and you know, I, I think this is the best receiving core in the country. I I don't know anywhere. I mean, I, I know there's other units at A and M that aren't you know up to up to snuff with the with the wide receiving core, but this wide receiving core is incredible. When you're talking about Christian Kirk, Ricky Seals Jones, and and uh, and Josh Reynolds. Yeah. And one of the comments that we've heard about Trevor Knight at Oklahoma is that he did not have a good receiving core. So it will be interesting to watch him operate when he has so many weapons at his disposal. Yeah, I think it will be as well. But the biggest thing is, I think, you know, I don't know if that if that has an effect on him trying to make plays where the plays don't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the thing that will get him in trouble. You know, in SEC defenses and, you know, in general, college football defenses are, are good enough. And the DBs and the SEC are long enough and fast enough to kind of goad you, goad you into some mistakes. Um, and so he's got to be, you know, wary of that. So I asked Chad Kelly, uh, old Mrs. quarterback, what he thinks, uh, if he had any tips for, uh, for Trevor Knight coming into the SEC. And he said, uh, he better prepare to get hit a lot. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's about uh, that's about all the uh, advice uh, Mr. Kelly had for uh, Mr. Knight. And, and speaking of getting hit a lot, there are a lot of question marks along the offensive line for A&M. We're going to experience a lot of turnover at the, the different line positions. There are some some competitions that are developing, moving into fall camp. And of course, we have Jim Turner, the offensive line coach, missing about a week of practice for the chalk talk controversy. So what, what are you expecting out of this unit in the 2016 season for the Aggies? I think that's the biggest question mark uh, around the whole team. I know a lot of people are talking about the linebacking core and is that going to be any good this mm-hmm. year? And I think that's been a question surrounding the Aggies for a while. But A&M, the strength of A&M over the last few years has been that offensive line. I mean, they've had studs year in, year out, first round, you know, high first round draft picks. Uh, on that on that offensive line, and this year the, the drop off was just incredible because yeah. uh, you don't really have a Jermaine Effetti type even returning. You know, last year Effetti was still coming back and one of the, the holdovers from from some of those stronger teams of the A and M past. And this year you really don't have that, so that is going to be the that is going to be the biggest question on how quickly that offensive line can gel because ultimately that'll that'll affect everything if, if the offensive line doesn't get going. Or you're not going to be able to run the ball no matter how well Keith Ford does. And, you know, Trevor Knight, if he doesn't have a whole lot of time to throw, I mean, that's only going to, you know, make it, it's going to force him to make bad decisions, you know, which is going to be trouble for A&M. So, you know, I think it's interesting that you look at the NFL and the way that they've treated offensive and defensive line draft picks early in the first round. I mean, you see guys going really, really early, um, offensive linemen, especially in the tackles going early and, you know, tackles being some of the most highly coveted recruits. And I think that goes to show how valuable offensive linemen are to teams and really the success of a success of a, any given football team. So, 
A&M's going to need that offensive line to, to kind of gain experience on the fly and play really well because otherwise it'll be a long year and who knows what's going to happen uh, if A&M struggles uh, and in December. Yeah, and uh, and Aggies have grown to hate the quick pass and the bubble screen, but if the offensive line is struggling, we are going to see heavy doses and you know it's it's hard to be effective with those as well when when the offensive line's not performing. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, I understand um, you know why you might not like the uh, short passes, but it essentially offsets a bad running game. And yeah, if your quarterback doesn't have time to throw the ball, you, and you have playmakers on the outside, then you get the ball to the playmakers. You know, so I I mean, it's I, I think Noel Mazzoni's going to do you know what he needs to do to find the offense. Right to get the offense to work, I think. I think you know, covering high schools uh, for so long, the, the most, and I think this is why Arm Browse and was uh, so successful at Baylor is that I guess he kind of just fit everything that the personnel he had. You know, he, I think, a, a really good coach knows what he has to work with, and then goes around those, uh, kind of works his game plan around those strengths. You know, and then when that may change year in year out, and you know, I think that's what you're seeing a lot of high school coaches go into college and you know be somewhat successful at the college level. So. Right. Um, yeah, you, you know, I think you'll, you'll just have to figure that out. You might see A&M's game plan adjust as the season goes on. And, and we've talked a lot about the high-quality receiving core at, at A&M this year, but we haven't talked too much about running backs. And you mentioned Keith Ford, but looking through the running back depth chart, the Aggies also have James White, Kendall Bussey, freshman Travion Williams. Do you think Keith Ford's going to tote the rock the most? Is he going to uh, carry most of the load, or is it going to be distributed around I, that's a, that's an interesting question. That's one I, I'm still kind of unsure about as well. I, one would believe that Ford would take a good amount of the carries um, coming in because, you know, but you never know when somebody ends up proving themselves uh, throughout the course of the season, and, and especially in, in, a, in a conference as physical as the SEC where running the ball is so important. I don't know if you can really have one guy with a good amount of attempts unless you have, you know, a Leonard Fournette just rolling around back mm-hmm. there or a Nick Chubb. Um, so you're going to need, uh, you're going to need a few guys to be able to run the ball because these defenses are, are so physical and running the ball is so important in the SEC more so than in other conferences like the big 12. Right. It's really interesting to look at rush attempts between the SEC and the big 12. I mean, the big 12, when you look at it, really likes to throw the ball around and, and run this war up, you know, they they like their 70 to 66 ball games, but you're not going to ever see a team get that in the SEC, you know, that's just not how it operates. That's not how people operate. You're going to have to be able to run the ball and, and, you know, you're going to have to have a few guys that are able to do it. But I, I'm, I, you know, right now I would, I, I, I think Ford is going to be the guy that gets a good amount of carries uh, throughout the season. Yeah. That'll be something to keep an eye on throughout fall camp as well. Cause James White you know, has a lot of promise and he's coming back from injury. I don't know how much the coaching staff is willing to show during the, the, the media availability or, or media sessions at, at fall camp, but but definitely report back uh, on your on your Twitter feed or let us know what the distribution's looking like there. I definitely will. And uh, you you mentioned the the defense briefly and how there are concerns about the linebacking core, but I think in general Aggies are pretty giddy about this defense, uh, particularly you know with the strength in the secondary and obviously uh, up front and and with the edge rushers that we have. So can you give us a reason for pause? Is there a reason that that we shouldn't be as optimistic about this defense? Yeah, I mean, A&M has to figure out a way to stop people from running the football all over them. You look at A&M last year, yards per, yards per carry, they were over five, which was second. I think they were actually five exactly, which was second worst in the conference. Mm-hmm. If you can run the ball for five yards a carry each time, then why don't you just run the ball, train the clock, and just wear a defense down? 
you know, that you have to, and someone noted that in media days, we've got to be able to run the ball and stop the run. Um, and those are things that, you know, I don't, I don't know if they can necessarily do that. And that's going to be the biggest question mark. Uh, so then, it, you know, it, it comes down to, you know, and especially if you're running up the middle and if you're doing, you know, you can find a way to negate really good defensive ends like Miles Garrett, Deshaun Hall. Um, and it's going to be up to those DTs to clog things up in the middle and, and for the linebackers to kind of fill the gaps and make plays. And, um, you know, and, and that's the one thing A&M is lacking, just a complete stud at every level. Because mm-hmm. you have one, you have a couple on the defensive line, you have a, a few in the secondary, but you really don't have somebody go, oh, you can stop somebody, right. uh, you know, in, in the middle of the field. And that's really what you need to have. And, you know, a middle linebacker is, is so pivotal. To how good a, to how well a defense runs, you know. I think it's, I believe, you know, middle linebackers the uh, the quarterback of the defense. I believe that's how the saying goes. So if you don't really have a strong linebacker, you know, it makes everything a little more difficult. For sure. You. Yeah. And have you heard anything about Jordan Master Giovanni at inside linebacker? I'm not expecting him to start, but it's kind of an interesting story because he left and now he's back. Um, is do you think he'll? He'll provide any meaningful playing time this season, or at least provide A and M with some good depth. I mean, I, at the very least, good depth. I'm not. I'm not too. Um, to be quite honest, I don't really know a whole lot about what he can bring to the table, especially for a guy that isn't coming. You know, it's basically just hadn't played for a mm-hmm. year, uh, if I if I remember correctly. You know, it's kind of hard to get back in the swing of things. Um, so he'll give A and M another body, right? Um, but yeah, you know, I just. That is that is a big question mark, you know. If it, it's a very low risk, low risk acquisition for A and M because I believe he's a walk on, correct? Uh, I think so. At the he wasn't originally, but I think he came back as a walk on, maybe or. Yeah, so in that case, you know, if it, if it's a walk on coming in, I mean, why not? If that's a guy he used to have on scholarship and he might give you something, and that's one place where you're weak, and you know, then then why not have him in case you need him? But yeah, you know, I think you know Sean Washington, I think, will be one of the. Uh, one of the big guys on that on that in that linebacker, you know, Taro Laka mm-hmm. will be another one uh, that A and M fans are really excited about. Um, so, I mean, that's going to be the biggest question, um, and how well that defense runs. If the linebackers can play well, A and M will have a very good defense this year because you know, under uh, under the new DC John Chavis, they uh, you know they made significant improvements last year, and you know, one would think that that would only continue. I mean, he was the best defensive coordinator in the SEC for a number of years. Um, you know, going back to his time in Tennessee and then at LSU. So I could see, um, you know, I could see that A&M defense really improving again, but it really comes down to the linebacking. Unit. Right. And Richard Moore looked good against the run last season. So we're, we're hopeful that, that that will continue and we'll, we'll see some improvement um, on that front too. And with his, uh, you know, dropping back for pass coverage. Yeah. That's another guy that, um, that's another guy that someone was pretty high on uh, throughout the preseason. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and he's a young guy, too. So if he plays well, that's only only means good things uh, for the Aggies down the road. So I feel bad asking you this after you told me that Aggie Twitter is treating you well so far. But can you give us a, a Texas A&M football record prediction for this season? I went on the record at saying eight and five. I think it's probably the best with the eighth one coming in a bowl game. Um, it's just... Looking at it, it's very tough to see them pulling out games that they need against. Like I think uh, some people predicted Tennessee being an upset win, um, and I basically went the chalk the whole way through. Um, so we're talking losses with LSU, Alabama, Ole Miss. Um, I believe I gave them UCLA um, at the beginning. Um, I think A&M will beat UCLA at the beginning of the year. Um, but other than that, I, I think 
when I went back and looked at it, eight and five is really what I'm looking at. I don't really know if the Aggies can deal with them, specifically coach someone and deal with an eight and five team. Yeah. Um, so, so it's just, it's, it's very interesting to see. I, I think people, um, you know, I've seen, I've seen folks and uh, specifically good bull hunting folks wonder, you know, why, why someone's on the hot seat uh, for coming in, you know, for a guy who's really done well compared to what, you know, Mike Sherman did and, and Franchoni did and A&M did in general over the last decade. Mm-hmm. You know, someone by comparatively compared to those guys of looking at the last 10 years has done very well compared to compared to his predecessors. But the reason that that everyone kind of has concerns is that that win total has dropped. And then looking at it, if I'm not mistaken, he's won with a lot of Mike Sherman's guys. I mean, he kind of lucked into that great offensive line and Johnny Manziel and Mike Evans rolling around and that defense was pretty good, too. Um, so those were, but those weren't his guys. Those were guys he inherited. Um, so yeah, it can, it can kind of be a curse to get rolling so quickly because then you set new expectations. So if you're winning 11 games in year one, then eight wins doesn't, you know, it's kind of a reference effect. Uh, we have our reference point now exactly. is double digit wins. And then suddenly eight wins is a disappointment. Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. And so I think that's why a lot of people are, are wondering, um, you know, is this going to, is this a trend that's going to continue? Um, and, you know, and then we'll and them kind of regress to, you know, being a team that's, a, a, you know, a middle of the conference program, which is honestly what a lot of people thought A&M would be when they entered the SEC. Um, so, you know, that's going to be, so that's the question was, was, was the early, was the Johnny area, basically an anomaly and are they, you know, forever going to be a, a middle of the conference team or are they going to be a team that, you know, like they did, you know, in someone's first year compete for an SEC title. Um, so, so I mean, there are so, there are so many interesting things about this season, which is why I'm incredibly excited to cover, uh, cover the Ags. Yeah. I, I do think that seven wins or fewer is going to, going to be very uncomfortable for, for Kevin Sumlin and this coaching staff. So I'm hoping for North of eight, if at all possible. Yeah, I mean, I think eight, eight at the, I think eight at the very least mm-hmm. is going to keep the boat, you know, keep them safe for another year, um, you know. But yeah, yeah, anything, I think anything less than eight will definitely be a, uh, will be a, will be, will put them on the hot seat even, even more so going into the off season. I'm cautiously optimistic about this season, although I'll, I'll probably end up predicting right in the ballpark of eight wins like you, uh, Bovada in Vegas set the line at eight wins yesterday. So I guess we're not doing anyone any favors in terms of which way they should bet. I would just stay away from A&M this year. If you're, <laughs> if you're, if you're into gambling. Smart money's on uh, somebody else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. You moved from San Antonio to Dallas fairly recently. Is that a, a good assumption I'm making? Correct. Yeah. It's been about uh, going on my third month at the uh, Dallas morning news. So we are, we are not only, um, football experts, which we're not, we are also, uh, culinary aficionados over at Good Bull Hunting. So you have to tell me which foods are way better in San Antonio compared to Dallas and vice versa. Oh man, this isn't even close. The Mexican food in San Antonio is just, I don't, it's, it's incredible. That's the, that's the one thing that I really, uh, was, was really disappointed to leave. Um, breakfast tacos, they are just phenomenal. It's crazy. Um, you know, I, I had friends that lived in San Marcos and so I'd go up in, in Austin. So I'd go up and eat breakfast tacos there. 
And after like a few months in San Antonio, I'd go and travel north, even like an hour. Mm-hmm. And I was like, these are awful. <laughs> Um, so I was, I was, I was incredibly upset, but the thing is, you know, we had that big breakfast taco war or whatever that was when some dude from New York was like, Oh, Austin's got the best breakfast tacos. Oh yeah. Like he's no longer allowed. That that guy's no longer allowed in South Texas. We have one at SB nation, Dan Rubenstein, who is a kind of self-proclaimed expert on Mexican food and breakfast tacos. And he's in New York. So, so we give him a hard time. Yeah, no, that doesn't count. I, I, I refuse to believe that claim. So, um, yeah, that's a. But the funny thing is, it stirred up an interesting debate, and I, uh, you know, people down in the Rio Grande Valley and you know down in Laredo and, and in Corpus were like, I think we have the best tacos. And somebody, uh, one of my old coworkers, brought tacos from the valley, and I go, Yeah, that thing beats San Antonio. <laughs> um, so the Mexican food, Mexican food down there is incredible. Uh, but the, honestly, the one thing I miss, I'm a Dallas. I'm, I grew up in Grapevine. Um, you know, I was in the DFW area my whole life before I moved. Uh, down to San Antonio. And the one thing I missed was a good brunch spot. Like good brunch is incredibly hard to come by in San Antonio, like a traditional American style okay, brunch. Interesting. Um, and if you find, and if you find it, you're waiting like a very long time. Right. I think my favorite brunch spot, the wait was like an hour um, on the weekends. And like, it, just, it was just hard to find decent places where you can get brunch. So I think any true, any true DFW native uh, has an affinity for meals somewhere between 10 and uh, 1, 1 PM. So, uh, that's the way it goes. So yeah, I'm happy to be back in a, in a, in a town with great brunch. Uh, but looking at it, I think I would rather have it the other way or I have really great Mexican food. And if I have to find brunch, I can, you know, I can, I'll wait a little bit for it because I still haven't found a, a substitute for my, uh, breakfast taco, um, <laughs> cravings. Sure thing. Yeah. I, uh, I lived in grapevine for, I guess between like five and seven years old. So I didn't, I wasn't there quite long enough to get into the brunch scene, but I'm, I'm picturing uh, people in Dallas wearing their Sunday best, you know, going to brunch in in suits. And no, I think I think everybody at this point is uh, struggling probably from the previous evening oh. <laughs> um, as they as they roll in as they roll in a brunch. I think that's usually how it goes. Um, but they are they're all dolled up. So I mean, <laughs> Dallas is a is very much a town of appearances that has not changed. Right. <laughs> I'm glad to see that was that was still prevalent when I moved back. So <laughs> good deal. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ben. This has been uh, very informative and we're all looking forward to, to following you as the, the new guy on the beat. Uh, do your best to stay off the, uh, the Aggie media hit list. There's kind of a list of, of beat reporters and national writers that, that Aggies don't have a, a high affinity for. And really, it's kind of outside your control. Even if you report the facts, you could, you could easily end up on the list. But um, it, it seems like you're doing a great job so far, but we haven't gotten <laughs> into the... Uh, you know, the dangerous parts of the season quite yet. Right. I, I fully expect to be, I'm going to be quite honest. I fully expect to be on this list <laughs> at some point and then take it off um, throughout the, uh, throughout the year. I think the old saying goes is that, you know, people generally hate their beat writers, um, you know, unless they're winning and then, that's, <laughs> and then they love their beat sure. writers. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll, br- I'll bring Brett Vito and do it again. You know, my buddy at the DRC, I mean, North Texas fans used to hate him, <laughs> you know, and say a bunch of bad, I mean, that team was awful. Yeah. I mean, Todd Dodge was not, very, not a very good coach. And, you know, that's when I was in school there. They just had a bunch of bad teams. But whenever we, uh, whenever UNT won the heart of Dallas bowl, which was a big mm-hmm. deal uh, to the mean green community, uh, we were we were going down on the field for interviews, and these fans rolled up to Brett and like, "Oh, you do a great job covering the program, oh, sure. and this and that and the other." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, because their team's winning. Like everybody likes everyone when they're winning." Which goes back to the point, you know, we'd rather cover a winning team than a losing team. I think, of course, we'd rather cover a winning team, but you know, yeah. 
we, um, you know, I think it's best to, to, to not let the results dictate your effort. Like any coach would say, right. you know, in a game, you don't, you don't want the score indicating your effort in the, in the same, in the same vein, you know, as a, as a beat reporter, you don't want how good or bad the team's doing dictate how you cover the program. Sure. Yeah. And we will, uh, as fans, we will do our best not to transfer our emotions onto our perceptions of you, which may be an impossible task. Hey, I, I I'll be here. Uh, if, if if I need to be blown up on Twitter, uh, you know where to find me at Ben underscore baby. So oh, please, please, please to, don't uh, encourage people to do that. But but do hey, do follow I, Ben. I, I will I will say come into the mentions at your own at your own risk <laughs> um, because I I do not I I am not shy of going at people. Nice. Uh, it's 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 a fun, it's a fun hobby. So but please. Uh, say hello and uh, thank you for uh, reading the Dallas Morning News that keeps my paychecks coming in. All right, so. good deal. Yeah, I don't, I don't, ha- I don't hold the same uh, DMN hate that that some Aggies do, and maybe part of that too is that most of the Aggies I interact with are in Houston, so we have that kind of city rivalry as well. Even though I'm not really part of that. There you go. Well, well, it's uh, well, I'm looking forward to covering uh, covering A and M, and I know I know Aggie fans love. Um, their university, they love everything about uh, College Station and, and what A and M represents. And so, it, it, for me, there's nothing more exciting than than knowing that you're going to write and work for um, you know a passionate fan base. So, I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited. All right, awesome. And again, be sure you follow Ben at Ben underscore Baby on Twitter, and uh, we'll try to check in with you throughout the season. And if you if you're able to to scratch out any free time, then uh, we'd love to have you back on soon. Hey, I'd love to be back. Just let me know. All right. Thanks so much, Ben. 